Hi everyone, welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Luke Savage. With me as always is... Uh, Mr. Will Sloan. Sorry, I forgot to use your formal title. I hear you're taking vacation this week. Yep, that's right. This is my uh, longest sustained break from writing in, I mean, a very long time. I took a vacation in April as well, like a vacation from Jacobin, but I think it was just to do like other work that I needed to do, like work on uh, some other projects. So this is my first real vacation. Uh, And yeah, I don't know, September was kind of an exhausting month. I wrote a lot of stuff. So, uh, you know, it's nice being on vacation. Uh, I would recommend it. I think this podcast is officially pro-vacation. Yeah, it's great. You can just listen to five Pink Floyd albums in a row. You can read as much as you want. You can go for nice long walks. Toronto, for those who don't know, has just gone, it's reverted to an earlier stage of lockdown. So a lot of stuff's closed, but I work from home anyway, and, uh, you know, haven't really been going out a lot except to go for walks and and exercise. Uh, So it hasn't really affected things much for me. Well, being between day jobs at this point, uh, I've basically been living a kind of vacation lifestyle. I mean, I'm I'm quite productive. I'm uh, podcasting like a fiend. So I guess that's kind of my full time job now. And, you know, I have to say, I'm I'm very I'm almost uh, afraid to admit this, but I'm very happy. (laughs) Um, What a concept. And, you know, I'm here thinking, okay, well, let's say I only did podcasting. I would have enough money to live and perhaps nothing more. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily have any money to save or I wouldn't have a great deal of spending money. But would the trade-off be that I would be very, very happy and have lots of of time? (laughs) And, you know, you, you sit there and you think, is that a worthy trade-off? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure many people are feeling a version of this. Well, you know, the listeners to the show, you can resolve this. If you haven't yet subscribed to the Patreon, uh, perhaps you can make Will's decision a little easier. <laughs> and, uh, you know, give us give us your money so that Will can podcast full-time and be happy. Consider it a subsidy for uh, Mr. Will Sloan's happiness. I'm partly saying this to riff, but I'm also saying it because uh, we regularly forget on these free apps to plug the fact or even mention the fact that we do have a Patreon. So particularly if you found us via the Jacobin feed, you may not know that we have extra episodes, one a week now, one extra episode per week, and a bunch of other bonus content we put up there. So if you like the free apps, uh, subscribe to the paywalled ones, and uh, that's where we're controversial and problematic. But you know, I always thought that poverty, money problems, things like those were due to structural problems. But then this week, I saw a trailer for a new movie coming to Netflix that actually showed me that a lot of it had to do with one's moral character. And the trailer is for Ron Howard's new film, Hillbilly Elegy, starring Glenn Close and Amy Adams, based on the best-selling memoir by a friend of the show, J.D. Vance. Do you actually want to be dead, Mom? Or are you just too lazy to try? Oh, I tried! Plenty! You've always got a reason. It's always someone else's fault. Some point, you're going to have to take responsibility or someone else is going to have to step in. Who? Who? Can I just say, as cultural institutions go, if you could assemble a cultural institution, you know, like something out of Lego and just like add the different pieces together to make something... Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy for Netflix would be up there with the things I would least like to exist. Uh, I think vaguely I'd heard that this was being made into something at some point, but, you know, it's like one of those things you glance at while you're scrolling and then, you know, you put it out of your mind. 
And yes, uh, you reminded me of this uh, yesterday when I think you sent me the trailer. I made it 30 seconds in. Uh, and then this morning you mentioned that you wanted to uh, talk about the trailer on the episode. So I, I should say right off the bat, this is not the Hillbilly Elegy episode. I don't think it's actually out yet, is it? No, it's not. It's coming this Oscar season, though. But so I watched 30 seconds of it yesterday. And then when you said you wanted to, to talk about the trailer, I very grudgingly went back on YouTube uh, because I only made it. 30 seconds yesterday I had to I had to switch it off and uh was very heartened when the YouTube algorithm remembered that I'd watched 30 seconds and started it from the 30 second mark so I didn't actually have to go back and re re revisit those first 30 seconds but uh I mean uh, yeah it uh, it looks pretty bad there's a lot of homespun wisdom in there like the world can be divided into three types of people a good terminator a bad terminator and a neutral now many are neutral <laughs> that's good um Watching the trailer, I realized just how damaging the Academy Awards have been for the art of cinema. I think many people would say that the Academy Awards are the reason that studios get in the business of making quality movies. But I see the Hillbilly Elegy trailer and I realize how it as an institution has encouraged so much of what's wrong with the art form. And I also think that good movies would continue to be made without the Academy Awards. Think of the vast history, the vast canon of good movies. Think how few of them have been nominated for Oscars. Think how few of them were even considered Oscar material at the start of their creation. I don't think Groucho Marx ever started a movie and said, you know what, this is going to be my bid for Oscar. And yet he left behind a remarkable legacy. I don't think John Carpenter did either. Well, that's that's a very uh, Will Sloan line of thought. Uh, and, and I agree with you. My reaction watching the trailer was that it felt like peak kind of 2017 political discourse. You know, during the lead up to Trump's election and after, you know, there was this whole renewed focus from coastal journalists, liberal and conservative alike, sort of examining in a very exoticized way the, the white working class. That had such a heyday, the reasons for which are mostly pretty pernicious. I don't think a lot of people realized, or I, I think some people that kind of sung the praises of this book, I don't think they realized it was not immediately encoded as a right-wing book for them. You know, although uh, I think the blurbs from Peter Thiel and the executive editor of the National Review should maybe have uh, uh, given given that away. David Brooks loved it, and he wrote an op-ed where he said that it called for, quote, a better form of nationalism. That was That was his take on the book. And I should, I should, I'll have to cop to, you know, not having actually read Hillbilly Elegy, although I've certainly read a lot about it. But yeah, the, this trailer looked, it looked out of date in some way, um, or what it represents felt very out of date. Uh, who knows? Maybe they've kind of updated it for 2020. Uh, it, you know, it is Netflix and they do, uh, as I understand it, partly write things by algorithm or at least by drawing on, on the algorithm. So Maybe we'll get a mashup of the sort of 2017 sensibility and the uh, the 2021. I was heartened to see the overwhelmingly negative reception to this trailer on social media. As recently as a couple years ago, it seems like the idea of a Ron Howard Netflix production of Hillbilly Elegy starring Amy Adams and Glenn Close would be just too big to fail. It would be something that would just steamroll through the fall all the way to Oscar glory. The fact that this movie and the ideas that it espouses and the aesthetics that it trades in are so instantly toxic, it seems, like almost cat's level derision has been directed <laughs> towards this. The fact of that, I think, suggests progress. Um, 
it would be nice if that progress led to Bernie winning the nomination, but I guess we can't have everything. <laughs> well, well, you know, you say that uh, it was met with universal derision, but as a very sagely voice in uh, the thing we watched uh, for this week's episode said, um, you know, the algorithm actually, you know, what you see on, on social media, that's actually very partisan. That's tailored to you. I don't know if that had ever occurred to you, but, you know, some would say that logging on to Twitter.com is really just about confirming your existing biases. Have you ever thought of that? No, it's true. I was also struck by something else he said, which is that all of us are living in different fact ecosystems. And it is true that I live in a different fact ecosystem than this man. Yes, I refer to former President Barack Obama, (laughs) who was the first and flagship guest on the high profile Netflix talk show. My next guest needs no introduction with David Letterman. What was that first day like? You're not Uh, president. Your feet hit the floor. I'm not president. What is more damaging to that democracy? Where's the handbook on that? It's petty. Is it six? Really? Karate kid. (laughs) Not as dumb as people think I am. Are we safe from the same thing repeating itself? Let's talk about uh, something you and I have in common. Kids. There's a picture of you dancing. Relief? Any relief here? Well, right there is a mistake. Am I supposed, is now when I'm supposed to respond? Yeah. <laughs> yes, now you can Okay, talk. all right. Uh, <laughs> I've been pretty skeptical. Uh, you know, Will's wanted to do this for a while, and I, I was kind of skeptical that there'd be enough to talk about. You know, even when you said we should do the first episode with Obama, and for some reason the second episode with George Clooney. You know, I'm sorry, I led you astray <laughs> with that suggestion. I was skeptical we'd have enough to talk about, but there's actually plenty to talk about, not just in terms of what Obama says on the episode, uh, which I believe aired in 2016. Is that right? Or was it 2017? 2017. 2017. So not only is there a lot to talk about in relation to what Obama says, uh, there's also a politics to David Letterman that, that are pretty interesting and to kind of what he's trying to do here. Now, I, I didn't spend as much time growing up watching David Letterman as you did. But in 2018, you wrote a blog post where you kind of detailed your thoughts on uh, David Letterman's Netflix show when it debuted, which I just revisited. And I guess before we get into uh, the stuff Obama says, which there's plenty to discuss there, maybe you can tee up for us what's at stake in David Letterman's Netflix show, if you see what I mean. What was David Letterman's trajectory? What was kind of interesting about him to you? And, and what kind of what's your relationship with him? It's a good question because talk shows are such an ephemeral art form. So much of television itself is ephemeral that it's easy for people to forget what his import was and what lineage he was a part of. From 1982 to 1993, which are kind of his his golden age, he had a show on NBC called Late Night with David Letterman, which was on at 1230 after The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Letterman and Johnny Carson, they're guys who had a lot in common, you know, they were kind of ice cold, white, preppy guys who were funny in a very effortless sort of way. But there was a big generational difference between them. Johnny Carson perfected the form of a talk show, whereas Letterman was the first guy to do a talk show in quotation marks. So where Johnny Carson was always very smooth on the air, David Letterman would often be very prickly and he would often be kind of combative with his guests, where everybody on the Johnny Carson show was a glamorous celebrity. 
Letterman would be doing things like, you know, bringing his crew members, uh, bringing his neighbors and putting them on TV. He had a recurring character called Larry Bud Melman, who was just kind of a a weird looking guy and an older fellow who had no particular talent, but was sort of a showbiz wannabe. And, you know, he became sort of the symbolic mascot of the show. And so you could say that David Letterman was part of a lineage of, you know, Johnny Carson to Conan O'Brien, but he was also part of a different tradition, too. He was taking some of the ideas that somebody like Andy Warhol would have had with celebrity. His show was a direct precursor to something like Tim and Eric's Awesome Show, which has a very similar relationship with the artifice of television and the line between fame and obscurity and the idea of what would it be like if we put this normal person into the highly polished track and surroundings of a TV show. And he brought a certain element of Dadaist humor to late night talk shows. So he would do things like have a whole segment of like, what if we dropped a melon from the top of the NBC building? What would that look like? Or he would be like, what if I got dressed up in a Velcro suit and jumped on a trampoline up against a wall and stuck there? You know, really stupid ideas. The whole idea being, what would it be like if a talk show did this? And he had he had many uh, incredible conceptual gambits. He did a whole episode in the 80s where the whole episode was dubbed later. You know, the way that like a Japanese monster movie would be dubbed from beginning to end. He did a whole episode where the audience got to vote on what would happen next. Now, the funny thing about David Letterman is this wasn't necessarily the show that he wanted to do. He was brilliant in some ways. So inevitably, any show, any show that he was going to be the figurehead of would take a satiric tone towards television at this time. But a lot of the big conceptual gambits of the show were uh, the products of his head writers, people like Meryl Marco or Jim Downey. When he got his big show on CBS, his big 11.30 show later, I think the show became safer. It became a more normal show. Like, he really did genuinely want to be an heir to Johnny Carson, not not a rebuke to Johnny Carson. And the show was still good because he was such an effortlessly funny man, but something was lost, I think. And something else that was lost when he went to CBS was the types of guests that he used to have on. When he was on NBC at 1230, he had a lot of very 1230 type guests. He had people like Sandra Bernhard, Harvey Pekar, John Waters and Divine, you know, strange underground people. And there would be a tension in the show between the fact that he was this kind of preppy Midwesterner and then the guest would be someone like, I don't know, Pee Wee Herman before Pee Wee Herman was really famous. And that was kind of lost when he moved to CBS. And as you say in the piece, uh, his kind of liberalish politics gradually started to come through. But you also note that his personality had a less charming side, which I think is germane to the conversation we're going to have about his Netflix show. So can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, he presided over a fairly toxic workplace environment, famously. He was somebody who himself suffered from very severe depression and was very difficult to be around, very difficult to work with. It's also well known that he had a series of affairs with women who worked on his show, which culminated in 2009 with this very big scandal where he was blackmailed by uh, the boyfriend of one of the women who worked on his show. And this was part of uh, a work environment that, you know, uh, women who worked on the show, women who wrote for the show said was not very welcoming of women. Now, another element of the politics of David Letterman, so to speak, are that he was up against Jay Leno. 
and Jay Leno was the one who got The Tonight Show after Johnny Carson. And for many people, particularly aficionados of comedy, Jay Leno was symbolic of everything wrong with entertainment. You know, here's this dumbed down, pandering hack who took it away from this genius who revolutionized late night. And, you know, part of the appeal of David Letterman to those who find him appealing is that he was prickly and unpredictable and not pandering. He was somebody who was visibly depressed and combative on air a lot of the time. And that made for interesting television a lot of times. The downside of it, though, was he was, by all accounts, not a particularly pleasant man to be around or to work for for most of his life. And so if there's anything touching about this Netflix show, I think it's that it is a concerted effort by him to be a good man. He is self-deprecating on this show to the point of self-laceration. He's constantly on this show talking to guests, you know, people like Melinda Gates or, you know, whoever, and saying things like, oh, you know, I, you know, I, w- I wish I devoted my life to helping people the way that you do. He has a segment with George Clooney's parents showing how they've sponsored a refugee. He has another segment on one of them showing solar power and how it works. There's a segment in the Obama episode with him walking across the Selma Bridge with John Lewis, uh, to whom he's very uh, sort of adulatory and deferential. So all of this is kind of sweet in a way. It's it's nice to see him try. The problem with the show is that it's incredibly boring and he's in way over his head talking to these people and none of this <laughs> plays to his strengths. Well, and he is deferential. I mean, without knowing kind of any of the background on David Letterman that you do, that was like the first thing I wrote down in my notes. Uh, and I was trying to imagine what this would be like if this was a British show, because say what you want about the British media. I mean, it's pretty bad. But one thing you can say to commend it is that they don't tend to have this deferential attitude towards fame and, and power, or at least not kind of uniformly or in the same way. Of course, when Boris Johnson had coronavirus, people wrote articles in The Telegraph that were like, you know, the prime minister's health is the health of the nation and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But If you watch interviews on even the BBC with, uh, you know, political leaders and stuff, you know, there's a house style that is is much more uh, confrontational. Even just what happens in the British House of Commons, where they have prime minister's questions and the prime minister has to go up and basically be, you know, they're basically thrown to the wolves for an hour. It's markedly different than the relationship I think Americans have to the presidency and even to people who've who've held the office of the presidency and are no longer in it. I mean, it's not as if I expected David Letterman to, you know, to grill Obama, particularly in retirement. But just the fact that there's absolutely no tension at all and that even David Letterman, uh, who's this famous late night host, you know, one of the probably a thousand most famous people in the world. Would that be fair to say? I think so. Yeah. The fact that the show presents, you know, it opens with him on the phone with Obama, politely asking, you know, kind of genuflecting and asking if he, you know, if he'll he'll consider being on his show. And, you know, the whole show is is just all of us, including David Letterman, are lucky to be in Barack Obama's presence and to kind of breathe the same air and to take in the, uh, you know, these pearls of wisdom, like, uh, you know, this thing about how we don't share a common base baseline of facts any longer and you know things like that that format to me is just profoundly uh uninteresting and it, it doesn't make for good tv unless you know i mean it makes i guess it makes for good tv if you're the kind of person that 
would enjoy an hour-long interview with uh, Barack Obama, which uh, I have to say I really didn't. I, I found this uh, a very difficult set, and not in the sense of it being boring, though it was, but difficult because I actually find it very hard to listen to Obama doing his Obama thing at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm so weary of all the things that he thinks are insights. I'm so weary of the perspective that he brings to things, just this incredibly bland liberal perspective that he just happens to be uh, somewhat better at articulating than his equivalents or his his contemporaries. I dislike profoundly uh, what Obama has become, uh, what he's chosen to do with his post-presidency, which is basically to kind of ratchet up the thing that he tried to do in in his presidency, which was to be above politics and just be this kind of unifying cultural figure. I think the show encapsulates that very well, although it's, it's of course, celebrating that. Um, it doesn't have any kind of critical angle on it. But, you know, as always, Obama comes across as somebody who barely ever takes any kind of strong opinion or strong position on anything. And when he does, and I think I'm paraphrasing that old essay uh, by Matt Taibbi, but, you know, Obama very rarely takes kind of strong positions on anything. Um, and when he does, he, he makes extra effort to show that he's doing so with great regret. You know, he doesn't he doesn't actually want to drag himself down to the level of, of politics and, and kind of be with the mere mortals. I was talking to uh, Nathan Robinson recently, and we were talking about the debate in 2012. Do you remember that debate that Obama, uh, you know, was kind of widely seen to have lost against Romney? Yeah. Well, as Nathan was saying, everybody remembers that, but nobody remembers why it was that Obama lost. And he was sending me some write-ups from the time. And it was because Obama, when he was critical of Romney, was only critical of kind of the details of his platform and things like that. He was critical in a sort of wonkish and, and, and bloodless way. And this was by choice. Obama had not wanted to criticize Romney, uh, actually, like none of the stuff that was effective that uh, the Democrats did in that campaign to beat Romney, like talk about his work at McKinsey. Uh, remember that? Remember when McKinsey was bad? Um, none of that kind of soft class politics that was actually effective. Obama hadn't wanted to appear unpresidential. <laughs> so in the context of a debate where he was defending, he was the the incumbent president defending that incumbency, he had not wanted to appear, uh, you know, soiled by politics. And that's something that he is really, uh, as I said, ratcheted up in his post-presidency, where, you know, he kind of does intervene quietly behind the scenes. Um, and, you know, you read about it months later in Politico. But mostly, uh, most of what kind of the public sees is, yeah, him on David Letterman. Uh, Oh, he's windsurfing with Richard Branson. How cute. Oh, he's produced a list of books and films and, um, you know, him and his team of consultants have (laughs) (laughs) produced like a list of like the designated, you know, the the most perfectly middle brow uh, stuff for me to enjoy. Uh, Hooray. I thought the show captured that very well, but uh, boy, it was not fun to sit with it for an hour. This was probably three or four months before he died. And Prince asks Sasha to come up and dance, and she's an excellent dancer. Then Sasha pulls me up, which surprises me because she always mocks my dancing, but (laughs) I have dad moves. Yeah. And I I think the key is is what we call staying in the pocket. Sure. (laughs) Right? Staying in the pocket. You gotta stay in the pocket. Because I think everybody here knows dads who get out of the pocket. And they're trying stuff that they can't really pull yeah. off. Yeah. 
you were mentioning the more combative relationship that the media has with their politicians in Great Britain. Towards the end of the show, Letterman says to him something like, you know, I was always raised to believe that the office of the presidency deserves inherent respect and the office of the presidency transcends the man who holds it, etc., etc., But it seems to me like, and and maybe I'm just making this up, but it seems to me that Obama on this show, the way he's presented, what he represents, is a different style of post-presidency than would have existed when David Letterman grew up. You know, a a style of post-presidency that maybe Bill Clinton is largely responsible for creating. Obama, in the interview, says something like, there's a stereotype of ex-presidents that they sit around by the phone or, or something like that. But here he's presented as this kind of superstar you know, almost like a lifestyle guru, a lifestyle guru crossed with like Richard Branson, a guy who is constantly on the move, uh, has has little initiatives around the world, you know, training the next generation of change makers and uh, <laughs> it, while also like cashing in with a with a big budget book deal. Like, am I right in thinking that this is a relatively new innovation? You know, this is new. And it was amazing. Uh, You know, one of the worst pylons I ever got on Twitter was the week that Obama, it was either the week he gave his first kind of big paid speech or just the week that news broke. Yeah, that was an awful week. There was, it was like, I got piled on by liberals for criticizing Obama's speaking fees. And I got piled on by a, a, another class of reactionary because uh, I was name dropped by Paul Joseph Watson on Infowars. So you yeah, not a, not a fun week on Twitter for me. But I think a lot of people reacted to criticism of Obama's speaking fees in a way that was kind of like, it, you know, it was ever thus. This is just what ex-presidents do, deal with it. And the thing is, that's, that's just not actually true at all. It's a, a relatively new institution. I, I believe that the first ex-president to really kind of hit the speaking circuit was George H.W. Bush. But I mean, Harry Truman was in the phone book, you know. Uh, he famously uh, refused to take seats on corporate boards and things like that. And I mean, it's like, whatever you think of Harry Truman, the reason he gave for that was a correct one. Because as he said, uh, quote, I could never lend myself to any transaction action, however respectable, that would commercialize on the prestige and dignity of the office of the presidency. So, you know, obviously, there's still a lot of reverence for the office of the presidency that I don't necessarily uh, have or, or share. But I mean, you can see a pretty there's been a pretty major shift from a culture in which an ex-president would have said that to one where somebody is taking half a million dollar checks to go to corporate events and, you know, is just hanging out with famous plutocrats and stuff like that. There, there has been a pretty big shift. And uh, I suspect that, you know, Obama is going to become or if, he, if not already, you know, he's going to become rich in a way that's uh, probably pretty unfathomable for ex-presidents, except perhaps a few that were privately wealthy beforehand. I think the advance on his book was something like $50 million, if I'm not getting that wrong. But yeah, I think his post-presidency is very different from others we've seen. I think in many ways, it's kind of a, a more intense version of what Bill Clinton did. And of course, part of what Bill Clinton did was was really linked to Hillary Clinton's political ambitions. Like keeping the Clinton brand alive and valuable? Yeah, and I guess we don't know if uh, you know there's some plan to turn the Obama family into a political dynasty. I, I suspect we'll know that pretty soon, if so. But what Obama is doing, you know, I'm actually, it reminds me of uh, that stupid phrase of Emmanuel Macron where he said that he wanted to have a Jupiterian presidency. Obama is doing a Jupiterian post-presidency, one where he's quite visible, but doesn't kind of drag himself down to the level of politics.
politics, um, you know, except when it's to make phone calls to uh, to crush uh, to crush Bernie Sanders or whatever. Which isn't really part of his brand, is it? Which isn't part of his brand. You're right. His brand is something quite different. His brand is is a you know is above such petty you know secular trifles. We see him on this show talking about some of the work he's doing in Chicago with his. Uh, I don't know what it's called, so let's just call it the Changemakers Institution. I think it's just called the Obama Foundation. You know, the one that he launched with a board that includes, like, you know, private equity executives and people from Uber. Right. So it's a chance to give uh, kids from all walks of life a chance to develop their their change-making skills. And whenever people talk like this, I always wonder, well, okay, let's say I'm a kid who really loves Donald Trump. And the, uh, the the change that I want to bring into the world is to have more candidates like Donald Trump in the Senate. So can I can I be part of the Change Makers Institute? <laughs> well, I think you've owned uh, President Obama with his own logic there. Well, well done. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that sort of Change Maker stuff. That's sort of like Davos speak for starting a business or a startup with some completely inscrutable you know mission about improving diversity and private equity or something like that. Right? He is in favor of a challenge the status quo and shaking <laughs> things up both of those both of those come up um, that stuff did come up but again that's that's secondary to what his appearance on the inaugural episode of Letterman's show is about because I think the I think what they spend probably the majority of the time on uh, and what I suspect the people who like this liked the most is the stuff that appears near the beginning, you know, which is sort of supposed to be showing us the human side of Obama. So I think the first thing Letterman asks him is, what did you do on your first day not as president? And he's like, uh, you know, I had to I, try to figure out how the coffee machine works. Yeah. And everybody's laughing. And you know, he talks about going on a vacation with his wife and getting to, you know, hang out with his wife and that kind of stuff. Um, we, were, we were arguing over closet space or, you know, the stuff near the end when he's talking about, you know, his daughters and stuff. I think if you're an Obama head, that's what you like. And you probably don't like when he's talking about the somber uh, politics stuff. Uh, you find that probably boring. I do think uh, there are a couple moments when Obama's genuine view of the world really comes across. And this is something that is important to say about Obama. If you read his books, if you actually read his speeches, you know, there's a really good piece just to bring him up again, a really good piece by Nathan Robinson recently in Current Affairs, where he went through and he read Obama's speeches. And, you know, he brought up that that quote by Christopher Hitchens that's quite memorable, whatever you think of Christopher Hitchens, which is that, you know, everyone says Obama is such a great speaker, and yet very few people can remember any particular kind of flourishes from his speeches. People don't remember any lines from Obama's uh, supposedly brilliant oratory. And I think that's true. Uh, although I also think it's true that if you if you read what Obama said in, in Dreams from My Father, if you read what he says in The Audacity of Hope, I think even more so, um, if you listen carefully and you're kind of honestly evaluating his speeches, he does tell you uh, what he thinks about the world. Everybody put this out of their minds in 2008. But in The Audacity of Hope, Obama praises aspects of, of the Reagan presidency. He's very, you know, there's a whole uh, section where he's being very charitable towards George Bush. I bring it up over and over again because really nobody remembers this. But there's that David Brooks column from like a, less than 100 days into Obama's presidency where, you know, I guess Brooks had written something the week earlier about like, hey, tax and spend liberalism is back. And the Obama White House had actually written him to to reassure him, you know, that one of the nation's marquee conservative columnists that actually they fully accepted the Reagan revolution and and uh, they had plans to, you know, uh, modernize Social Security and Medicare and stuff like that. You know, Obama has always been pretty explicit about this stuff. And I guess it's interesting to ponder why 
why it's it's really never loomed that large, particularly for his uh, kind of progressive fans and, and his more liberal supporters. But getting back to Letterman, there's a moment when he says something that I think is uh, very honest about how he sees the world. Uh, it's quite early on, and he says... Some of the effective, you know, something that Michelle understood more quickly than me was that part of your ability to lead a country doesn't have to do with legislation or regulations. It has to do with, and this is direct quote, shaping attitudes, culture, shaping awareness. And I think Letterman says, you know, it's behavior kind of nodding along. And then Obama replies, you know, yeah, it's something that people can relate to, see, feel, touch. And then he says, you know, what got us there was the ability to tell stories. And I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think this is very, this is a very lucid statement about how Obama sees the world and saw his role as president. And I think it's something, uh, you know, part of his his legacy is one of the strongest parts of his legacy for American liberals and for kind of elite Democrats is this belief that politics happens on the level of culture, um, that that's the most important thing. But the demeanor, the personality, the temperament of the person who holds the office of president is more important than the legislation that they pass or don't pass, uh, more important than what they regulate or don't regulate. This speaks to the appeal that Joe Biden has for some people. It also speaks to why liberals of a particular variety anyway, find the Trump presidency so odious. You know, it's not because, for some people anyway, it's not because of anything Trump is doing. It's because he demeans the office of the president. It's because he has the wrong temperament, the wrong character. The presidency is a very somber thing, and he's this, you know, buffoon who treats it like a cheap showman would, which of course is is actually one of the things that makes Donald Trump effective, um, is that, it, you know, is that he is such a showman. But anyway, I was very struck by that remark of Obama's that part of your ability to lead a country doesn't have to do with legislation and regulations. It has to do with shaping attitudes, culture, and shaping awareness. You know, it's it's behavioral. I think that's a very lucid statement about how he sees things. One of the other more explicitly political parts of the discussion is when Obama starts talking about facts. He diagnoses this as one of the main challenges facing American democracy, that people people who listen to Fox News and people who listen to NPR, which, by the way, he positions as the two poles. <laughs> I like, yeah, those are the two genders. I like that that was the choice, NPR, because uh, I just, I wrote down, what about MSNBC? <laughs> These are the two cultural poles, right? Because mm. for him, polarization is a cultural thing. What's good about NPR in this formulation, at least in how I interpret it, is that it has the better cultural signifiers attached to it, right? It's not even so much that NPR is more likely to be factual than Fox News, which it is. It's that, you know, NPR is where you go for the for the good shit, you know, the kind of shit that would appear on an Obama, you know, end of year list about like, watch this movie or read this book. But he says that if you listen to those two respective networks, you are living in different fact ecosystems. We no longer have that shared reality. Now, elsewhere on the show, he talks about his first year in office. And he says how happy he was that, you know, within a year and a half of having become president, they were adding jobs to the economy as opposed to shedding them, which which is factual to a degree. But it shows the limits of facts, doesn't it? Because what were those jobs? A lot of those jobs were the gig economy. Right, exactly. I mean, that's one problem with this, with this very, you know, common idea that, uh, you know, the big problem today is that people live in kind of different, uh, you know, different fact bubbles or whatever, and social media reinforces their prejudices. And, you know, I think that's an attractive idea to people. I mean, for one thing, because it, it is true, just on its own, it's a, you know, it's a correct statement uh, in many ways about how social media 
works and uh, also you know it can be extended to network news although i think a lot fewer you know it's very interesting that the people who make that complaint about social media don't make the same critique of network news which is you know pretty much exactly the same thing happening as you know paraphrasing from the book hate inc now but the news is not the news as many people understand it it's you know a carefully tailored entertainment product that's cur- curated especially for you so that's another problem here but I thought what was uh, what was most interesting about this statement is that Obama sp- specifically says that this is why our politics are so polarized right now. So I think it's easy to miss the significance of that because it's one thing to complain about social media and how it reinforces people's biases and stuff. I think that's pretty well understood at this point. Stating outright that this is why politics are polarized, I think, is an incredibly revealing remark. And what Obama is saying here, I think, has really entered into the deep structure of how people, uh, many people anyway, conceive uh, of the Trump era. Problems are not really political, they're epistemological. The problem is that people have bad information, and if they, would ha- if they had correct information, they'd make the good decisions. So you see this in all, uh, in all kinds of things. You see this in the kind of endless debates about algorithms and you know, the complicity of, of sites like Facebook and Twitter, uh, or companies, I should say, like Facebook and Twitter, in, uh, in you know, the spread of misinformation, conspiracy theories, but also in their responsibility, as some would have it, to uh, crack down on these things and to kind of play the role of moderator. But this idea that polarization happens specifically because of that, uh, it's not actually a political phenomenon. It's a cultural phenomenon. That, too, speaks so deeply to Obama's conception of politics. And actually, something else that comes to mind here, which it feels like a million years ago since I wrote about this, but, um, you know, Pete Buttigieg, when he was kind of initially getting a lot of attention, one of the things that he proposed was this uh, this national service program. And a lot of people were, you know, pretty uh, derisive about it. And I think that was the right posture to have towards this. But very few people read uh, what the justification for the, the need for a national service program was. And I thought this was very interesting. I wrote it about it for Jacobin. I think this was in the summer of 2019, which feels like a very long time ago now. But essentially, the argument was that there's a lot of polarization, a lot of, you know, divisiveness, yada, yada, because people have different shared realities. So if we put people in the same, uh, you know, if we give them a common experience, we can rectify that, we can remedy it. And this is so interesting to me as kind of a statement about uh, how liberals try to reverse engineer social solidarity. Polarization is a matter of people having different perspectives. So if there's a common experience... Uh, rooted in the nation uh, that everybody can kind of partake in and share in, uh, that'll fix the problem. Social solidarity is, you know, it's not a socioeconomic problem. If there are socioeconomic differences, those differences are re-encoded as kind of cultural differences. They're understood as just people live in different realities. And these differences of, of opinion and outlook and lived experience are kind of innocent differences. The problem isn't hierarchy as such. It's just divergent experiences, different epistemological realities that people exist in, different cultural realities. So the solution is is for the state to uh, redistribute lived experience instead of wealth and power. I think that's an idea that's very popular during the Trump era, and you do see it most commonly applied to social media. But I think it has deeper roots in how uh, modern centrist liberals see the world. The other big part of this episode is an interview with John Lewis, which takes place in Selma. This is 
you know, a few short years before John Lewis's death, when he had become a kind of secular saint in American politics. What what did you make of this segment? I mean, there's not much to say about the conversation between, you know, Letterman and, and Lewis itself. Uh, there's some some good footage of a younger Lewis during uh, the civil rights era, which is uh, which is pretty interesting. But I think the function of, of including this in the episode is really, you know, it's, it's really in service to the Obama stuff, because, uh, you know, a crucial part of Obama's whole shtick and his appeal was this kind of soft sheen of activism. And they're able to do that here by by bringing in John Lewis and by bringing up these decades-old civil rights struggles. This is a part of the Obama brand where he talked about being a community organizer and stuff like that. And I think this kind of activist sheen was very crucial to his appeal in 2008 and is something that he uh, you know, clearly wants to retain in his post-presidency as well. It cuts at one point to the speech he gave, uh, I guess, in 2015 for the Selma 50th anniversary. Um, And, you know, he says something like progress sometimes requires disruption, which is a sentiment that I like and I I certainly agree with, although uh, I would, you know, humbly submit that that's not a principle that Obama lived by during his presidency. His entire presidency was about being minimally disruptive. You know, if the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression uh, was not a moment to be disruptive, when was? Well, at one point, Letterman asked Lewis, do you think Obama would have been there with you marching at the time? And Lewis says, without a doubt, absolutely. And I mean, who knows whether or not he would have been? Who knows at what point in Obama's life that he would have been? Maybe when he was younger, he would have been. Um, what I do know is that Obama was on the phone a few weeks ago with the NBA players during the lockout telling them, oh, you know, I, I, uh, I think you've kind of made your point. Right. And, and the best way to be effective is to uh, is to have a seat at the table and keep playing because then pe- right. then you'll then you'll hold people's attention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the worst Super Bowl party ever. Now, Dave, be nice. Oh, he's just saying that because I'm here. Oh, he's just saying that because I'm here. So I was watching a few clips of Jay Leno the other day. Specifically, I was watching a famous interview that he did with Hugh Grant. This was credited with being the interview that turned things around for Jay Leno. Just a couple days after Hugh Grant had been pulled over by Hollywood police for engaging in some bad behavior. And I was watching Leno uh, doing this interview and I thought, you know, this guy's pretty affable. And, you know, I've spent my whole life disliking Jay Leno for his many crimes against comedy and also for kind of the bleakness and sourness of the worldview that his show presented. Uh, One of his trademark bits was called Jaywalking, where he would go out on the street and he would like ask regular people questions about like um you know so uh, how many how many states are there in america and they would say um, um i don't know uh 30 or you know something like that or, or he would ask them so who was the first president of the united states and they'd be like uh uh, uh jfk you know the, the, the whole thesis of this segment being that uh mankind is fundamentally barbaric and needs to be tamed <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that was pretty latent. And as I was watching these these Jay Leno clips, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of that line in Chinatown that John Houston says, where he says, of course, I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians and ugly buildings all get respectable if they last long enough. And I, I think I feel that way towards Jay Leno now. Uh, I respect him because he's so different than what's on late night talk shows now. Now all the late night talk shows are MSNBC shows, basically. And I was watching him feeling a bit nostalgic for a time when, you know, it was just like kind of a lame guy doing like lame comedy. (laughs) What you're saying is that's better than the libs making good points a la Jon Stewart, but not as funny. 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I look at Stephen Colbert now, and I mean, Stephen Colbert was once one of the funniest people in the world, and now all he does is just recite the facts with with a with a voice. And you know, maybe I'm looking at the past through rose-tinted glasses, but I think I'd rather watch Jay Leno interview Sinbad. Remember the days when we had a shared reality and a common baseline of facts, and uh, when you know, mom, dad, and 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 Billy and Jane would uh, would huddle around the phonograph and listen to Jay Leno interview Sinbad. Good morning, Peter. I made your favorite breakfast. The hell is this? French toast. I just made a few creative changes to the recipe. I think it's a lot better now. Oh, this is your idea of a joke. You must write for Leno. Oh, oh you know, it, it is so fashionable to take a shot at Jay Leno. Look, look, the fact is the man is out there every bloody night with fresh material and is charming. 